Well, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 20. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. And while you turn there, I just want to say how thrilled I am to get to do this today. I, I love this church. And as I just even look out across this room, there's just been individual people that have blessed me. I love Grace Fellowship. Whether it was in Sunday school growing up, I was a mess, but I was so blessed by it. Or whether it was in youth group uh, and I was being sharpened or community group. Or even just like Sunday after Sunday in the lobby and the red-faced belly laughter that I get week after week with you all. I'm blessed by this church and I love it. But in all the times that I've been here, one way that I've been consistently and most blessed is through the preaching of God's word. And I have been formed into a different person because of it. And so I just want to say that I don't take, what, don't take this lightly. This is an honor and I feel humbled to get this opportunity. I hope I've given you enough time to get to 2 Corinthians after that. Um, So, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and now I invite you, if you're physically able, please stand in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 20. This is what the Lord has said through the Apostle Paul. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The title of today's message is, What is the Gospel? This term gospel is it's it's familiar with the majority of americans and i hope that in this room it's familiar to you as well you know our culture they off, it's often associated with the bible and with church and with jesus with books of the bible even maybe the gospel of john the gospel of mark things like that it may be associated with a music genre even this term gospel, at least by our, our, our culture, by our world, is understood to be religious in nature. But this term gospel, it may leave fuzzy, warm feelings for some people as well, reminding them of the days that they spent, out, spent in church growing up. They loved Sunday school. It's a great tradition. Great. I went and did that. Now I'm an adult. I'm living my life. But I remember that. That makes me feel good. Or for others in our culture, it may, mean, it may leave the exact opposite imprint. It may remind them of their days in childhood and church growing up. And pressures, pressures hitting them. And, and fear and guilt and shame and, and hate even from the people that they knew in church growing up. And Either way, this term gospel, it's going to leave at least some sort of imprint of emotion on the majority of people in our culture. So we need to keep in mind that When we say the word gospel, we need to know what we're saying. And people may not know what we mean by when we say that. And it can leave a lot of different impressions on a lot of different people. But a Christian, a Christian cannot, a true born-again Christian cannot, indeed, they must not just have a vague idea of what the gospel is. This is actually the thing that sets the Christian apart. It's not only an accurate understanding of what the gospel is. 
but it's also the genuine, life-changing belief in it. Lifestyle-changing belief in this gospel. You hold fast to it day by day. You live your life oriented around it. And I know that many people in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. This has happened to you. But Christian, hear me. Today's message is for you. But I'm also assuming that though there are Christians in this room confident in their salvation, I'm also assuming that there may be many people in this room that are are now in a spot that I was in only just a few years ago. Holding with you only a general sense that Jesus and the Bible and church, these are important things. In fact, they are very important things, and that word gospel is just thrown around in this circle in that. And it's, it's good to know about. You may not actually say it that way, but that's how you live. And, and, and when, this is how you can kind of see it. When you worship at church, or when you think about God, or when you have conversations with others about things pertaining to the Bible, there's just a bit of disconnect between your experience and the words that you say. Often you may lay awake at night fearful of the next day. The thought of death cripples you. Fearful. And you may be guilt-ridden over hidden sin that you just cannot seem to be able to quit doing. And you don't know what to do. And if this is you, I want you to hear me. Today's message is for you as well. But right now, for you, that word gospel doesn't personally mean what it should. It doesn't literally mean its definition, namely good news. For you, it's just news. But today, I've made it my aim to show it for what it is, good news. And I'm going to do it in in two parts. Number one, I want to present clearly what the gospel is. What is this good news of Jesus Christ? Accurate knowledge of it. But then I also, number two, want to identify what the gospel-believing person does and what they don't do. This is like a a so-now-what after number one. So number one, present clearly what the gospel is. Number two, so-now-what. Beginning with number one, what is the gospel or what is the good news of Jesus Christ? You You may not usually think about it this way. But we worship in a religion that is based entirely around one moment in history, a story. Each and every week, we gather here to celebrate the exact same thing that Christians have gathered to celebrate for centuries. The same news every week. That's unique. The same news. Yes, we gather here to, to worship God. Absolutely, inarguably, that is the reason that we are here today. And to worship God for what? His power and his majesty and his holiness and his grace and his love. All these things, yes, absolutely, to the glory of God, we worship him. But all these things that we worship him for, they are made, they're made most manifest in one particular moment in history. Yes, God has given us a central moment in history for us to look back to again and again and again. And it's the highest moment in all of history. 
And it's the best moment for all who would believe in it. And in this moment, we see good news. The best news, the the gospel. I love how the reformer, Martin Luther, talks about the gospel. This is what he says. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. I love that. And if he's right, if, he's, if Martin Luther is right, that this is the principal article of all Christian doctrine, then the gospel is not allowed to be a foggy concept to you. You have to know what you accept or reject. In our hope for all of life, our good news cannot just be a vague feeling that going to church or being a a good person or giving to charities or even this notion that if you say, I believe in Jesus, it will somehow make it all work out for us in the end. No. We need need a rock-solid foundation to stand on for our life because life's hard. And we need truth to believe in and a reason for any kind of hope that's in us. And all across the New Testament, there are great, lengthy passages devoted to unpacking this rock-solid foundation of good news. But this morning, however, I, I just wish to show the gospel as simple as it really is. I mean, simple that a child might understand. So, kids, if, if you're in here, this is it. This is the moment. This is the most important thing that you could ever, ever, ever know. Ever. The gospel is the thing that, if you understand it, it changes everything. And it's here in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Look at this simple message of the gospel. Verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's it. That's, that's the gospel. And if there was any confusion before You now have a perfect memory verse for the week to understand what we celebrate week after week after week, day after day. And this verse, though, this verse, verse 21, it does something. It is good news that resolves the problem of the human experience for the human condition. And in order for it to be good news that grips us, we must have a good sense of reality about ourselves first. We must have a good understanding of how Scripture describes our condition before this good news ever reaches our ears. So let's look to the Bible to see the story of the gospel in five parts that we too may know it well, teach it unto others, and beat it into our own heads continually. Five parts from scripture of the gospel. Number one, God created us as image bearers to glorify him, the image. Genesis 1, 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. And so picture the scene here, all right? God has just been busy making the universe 
all right? He is speaking the world, the universe, into existence, the mountains and the stars and the caterpillars and the lilies and the sequoias, roaring waves and garden tomatoes. And then he turns and he says, now let's make something that resembles me. And so he spoke, saying, let us make man in our image. And boom, it was so. Male and female, he created them to display to display himself, not them, himself in a unique way to the rest of creation. That's the purpose. And this is what you were made to do. You were designed with the specific intent of reflecting God's wonderful nature to the world. And when you do this, when you reflect God's wonderful character, like when you show patience to the undeserving person, or when you love without ever expecting anything in return, true love, when you do this, you do exactly what you were designed to do, and you reflect how good he is when you do this because you treasure him first and foremost. This is the grand design for our life. But when you, but when you don't do this and you exchange reflecting God to treasuring something else by being impatient with people or loving but only with the selfish motives of what it can get you in return myriads of different things it looks like when you don't do this when you don't reflect god and treasure something else you are not doing what you were designed to do that's pretty simple right and when you don't do what you're designed to do then you're gonna experience a lot of disconnect from your purpose disconnect from god what you're experiencing. And as we know, we all have chosen to live contrary to the purpose of God's design, which brings us to the second part. Number two, we all have turned from God to glorify ourselves. You're likely familiar with the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, how they turned from God eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when God explicitly told them to not, and they disobeyed God, and you and I have done the same. Myriads and myriads of sins have been committed by every single person across this room. This grips us, and it all boils down to disobeying God. But disobedience comes out in, in many different ways. But one, one primary way that I've seen it in, in my life I'm on the college campus. I see it in my friends. I've seen it in adults. I've seen it in all of us. I've seen it in our culture. It's it's, it's told really well. This problem is told really well through the story of the Tower of Babel. So here's the scene. Everyone is migrating farther and farther from the Garden of Eden. And they decide amongst themselves that they want to build a massive tower. Not for the Lord. No. But for themselves. For their names. Genesis 11.4 says, Then they said, Come, let us build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And when you think about it, right, not much has really changed from then to now. I mean, much of social media is what it is today because of this sinful desire to make a name for ourselves. It's natural. It's what we want. We want to make a name for ourselves. 
What about you? Consider your social media. What do you primarily post about? What do you primarily comment about? And if you don't have a social media, then what is the primary topic of your conversations? What sort of, what sort of tower are you building? And the, the problem, though, isn't just, it's not just the proverbial towers that we have built now, but it's, it's deeper. It's, it's our desire to build them in the first place. That desire. And that, that is what separates us, really separates us between us and God. There is a great disconnect between us and God because we see ourselves to be more worthy of our life's work than God. And we naturally desire, we just desire to turn from him. And this separates us from him eternally. And with this present condition, we are now caught up to speed with the Apostle Paul. It's like Corinthians 5, number 3. He bore our sin, all of our sin. When Jesus was, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, it wasn't, it wasn't because of just some big misunderstanding, nor was it primarily the work of angry men in history that led to Jesus dying on the cross. No, there was something much, much bigger happening here. And look, you can see it in this verse. Look at how Paul words this in verse 21. First part, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. God made Jesus to be sin, not angry men, not some misunderstanding. It was the intent. It was the purpose for which Jesus came. And this is the point where Jesus steps into our mess, into your mess. We can see this control. Jesus once said to his disciples, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. And when Christ, when Christ was nailed to the cross, he bore immense physical pain. And the twisting of his arms around the nails plunged into his wrists to gasp for breath is a pain that I can say with confidence you've never experienced. And so when it's spoken about, it may be hard to understand or even imagine but there's another thing happening there that you do know the feeling of you do know the feeling of anguish when you know that you've sinned when you've genuinely done wrong the sensation the sensation of hurting somebody and not being able to fix it is a severe Pain, I'd argue worse than physical pain. And you may know this pain all too well. There's a real feeling of regret and, and horror and maybe even, maybe even hollowness, this numbness. Yes, you know this feeling. I know this feeling. 
It's when you've said too much and you, and you can't take it back. It's when you've done something in the dark that you now have to try and avoid about thinking in the light. Or just learn to live with it. It's when you've stepped, when you've stepped all over someone hoping to, hoping to show them, then they'll see. But when, but when the emotions cool, there's, and the air becomes just all far too still, there's that feeling again. Regret. Hollowness. And the Bible has a word for it. Guilt. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. When Jesus, when Jesus cried out, called out to his father on the cross, one of the final things that he ever said was, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? I can only imagine how still that air was. He made him to be sin. The pain of sin has now pierced the heart of Jesus. The feeling of regret, that feeling of hollowness, the nails of guilt due to us are instead driven into his hands, into his heart. And though he had no sin in himself, Christ suffered our punishment under God. God treated Jesus as though he had done everything that you had ever done. Every rash and sinfully instinctive response, every scheme which you made to get what you want, every metaphorical tower that you have built to make a name for yourself in this world has now been instead attributed to you. Instead, it's been attributed to Jesus as though he built it. That's what he's punished for. What I'm about to say is, probably going to be the most important thing that I say all day. And you can't miss it. This is, this is the point where we see that God is worthy of our worship day after day after day after day for the same moment in history. Why? This is the point where the gospel becomes a thing that changes our lifestyles, changes us internally, changes our heart. It's enough to think about for the rest of the day, for the for the evening, for the rest of the week, it's enough to think about and treasure for the rest of your life. On the cross, we see this. God has more mercy in him than you have sin in you. And although your sin is great, it is great, but God's mercy is greater. It, there's more of it. This truth, it's worth repeating again, so listen. God has more mercy in him than you have sin in you. Yes, your sin is great. Nothing that you could overcome yourself, but God has more mercy in him than you have sin in you. And he, the Lord God, he has made the way for you to receive that mercy. What we're talking about is the great and triumphant Christian doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Christ, he bears our sins on the cross fully and completely, and they're stripped from us, never to be counted to us again. Hallelujah. 
But, but what, about all the, what about all the good that Jesus did? Right? Like, what a, he was so patient. What about the way that he washed the disciples' feet, those who didn't understand? What about the receiving and the loving of the little children? What about all the moments that he patiently bore with difficult, obstinate, foolish people just like me? Will, what about that? Does God just not see that anymore? Does that just go ignored? Shall it be forgotten? No. God shall not ignore the righteousness of Jesus. Look again at verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Number four, we wear his righteousness All of his righteousness. Jesus, he showed so much mercy to so many people in his life. And now that mercy, it covers you. It cloaks you like a rope. Jesus never failed to be patient with children. That's probably convicting for many. That patience is now credited to you. Jesus always honored God in his heart and in his words and in his actions. And those words of righteousness, that heart of righteousness, those actions of righteousness are now credited to you. Yes, everything lovely about Jesus is now true about you to God. And why? Why did this happen? Because God's love compels you to reconcile him to himself. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he, Jesus, God, the God of the universe, that he might bring us to God, that he may bring us back to himself in fellowship. God's love for you now triumphs triumphs over the hatred towards the sin in you. So then he gave himself as a sacrifice in your place, nailing you to a tree, purging it from your records, that you could be reconciled to him, walking in the light and enjoying him forever in the cloak of righteousness of Jesus. That's good news. But So then, how, how do we receive this good news? Then How do we live with this Good news. How do we accept this? Number five, we then receive this gift by responding in faith. I'm going to illustrate this by drawing out an analogy from Scripture. I'm going to, I want to put you in the shoes of someone that you may not regularly think about or associate yourself with. But as Christians, I am persuaded that if we are to truly embrace the gospel... We must see ourselves less like good old churchgoers and more like this man. Someone in need, in need of grace. Answer, answer this question, and not out loud in your head. Answer this question. How do you think Barabbas responded when he was told that he was free to go? The guards come to the the gate, and they look at Barabbas, and they say, Barabbas, you're free to go. Another guy has stepped into your spot. You're free to go. He's going in your place. A Barabbas, a murderer. 
a revolter, a man due for the death penalty for treason, has now been just given the deal of a lifetime. And the only appropriate response for Barabbas is shock. It's an appropriate response for someone such a sinner as him. And what we know, what we know is that that Jesus then did go on to be punished, and Barabbas was pardoned from his sentence. Barabbas, Barabbas walked free. He didn't remain in his cell. He didn't try to pay his debt with the guards. No, he walked free. He received the news and believed it and walked out of his cell. And the work was not done by Barabbas. He didn't make anything happen. It was done by another. And in a similar way, maybe today you may need to walk out of your cell. The cell not built by stones, but instead built with bricks of guilt and barred in by shame, shackled down by sin. sin. And down the hall from this bone-rotting cell awaits a worse fate, the punishment for your sin, a cross with your name written on it. While I stand here today to tell you that another man has stepped in, prepared to take your place. To walk the road to the cross instead of you, the finest man to have ever lived has died in your place, and you are free. You are free to go. Your sin is no longer counted to you. You may leave the cell behind you, no longer enslaved to the desires of your sin, but you can walk free out of the cell to the glory of God and to say no to the sin which once ruled your life and shackled you down. You may leave this cell of guilt and shame behind you. Hallelujah. Why is it then that so many people remain in their cells? What about you? Are you shackled down by by your habitual sin? Have you done too much to be undone? Maybe even today on your way here, you've said things you, you wish you hadn't said. You're actively making a real mess of your life by leaving a long trail of blue, bruised and bloodied people behind you. Is that you? And if it is, if that's you today, I want you to know that I have prayed diligently for you that you would be here today, that you would today hear this message, walk out of your cell and into the light of the King. Reconciled to God into the arms of your Father who never fails to love, receive this grace and go free. What about you? Christ Christ has paid your debt. Will you believe him and walk free from your guilt? Free from your punishment? This is the gospel. This is your hope for freedom. This is what it means to be justified before God. So number one, what is the gospel? Closing the section out. In summary, the gospel is this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
So number two. So now what? Like, what does a gospel-believing person do? What, what do they not do? So now what? Don't worry. This section is a lot shorter than the first, so we, you'll be out on time. <laughs> but it's vitally important that you get this. Depending on where you, where you are spiritually this Sunday morning, verse 20 of 2 Corinthians 5 will apply differently across this room in different personal ways. Here's one way. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Maybe today the gospel has pierced your heart in a way that it never has before. The lights may be coming on, maybe even slowly like a dimmer. But if so, I join in the Apostle Paul in pleading with you, be reconciled to God. And if you're, not, if you're not exactly sure what that looks like in your daily life, like what do I, like what now what? What does that look like? Look, that's okay. That is okay that you don't know. But you got to own it. You got to be real. And when you get up from the service, look around this room and find someone that calls themselves a Christian and tell them that. And I'm confident, I'm making the case, they're going to happily reschedule whatever plans they got going on for the day and talk with you. Spend time with you. That's what a Christian does. But maybe you're already reconciled to God when you came in here this morning. Maybe you're already a Christian. And if you're already a believer today, I want you to hear the verse in this way. Remember this. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Look at this first part. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. This is a privilege and a purpose, a purposed life and a practical opportunity to live for the glory of God by sharing his good news with the world. And many Christians will substitute this privilege for low-level feelings of belonging or comfort in this life and in this world. I tell you that there is more comfort and more belonging in the cross of Jesus Christ than living just like the rest of the world. You ever wonder why... Peter says this this way in 1 Peter 3.13, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. It's all too common that this question doesn't get asked of Christians. Why is that? When was the last time that you were asked this question? For maybe some in this room, it may have happened a lot when you first became a Christian and your zeal was hot, but as life has gone on and become fairly routine, maybe your faith has followed the exact same pattern. For others in this room, maybe this has never happened to you once in your entire Christian life. What's the reason for the hope that's in you? Why, why are you like that? Like, what do you talk about Jesus like that? Like, and I'm afraid 
I'm afraid of this. What the reason why might be because the hope that you carry in you doesn't look a lot different than the kind of hope that the world offers because it's set in the same exact things. And we'll drift. I, I drift. Hear me. I, am, I drift and it's a fight for me. It, it's because I will, I will drift primarily into treasuring relationships and treasuring the people-pleasing that I can get possessions in this life, getting as much as I can, or comfort in this life. Whatever it is, I will treasure it more than the good news of Jesus that has saved me and the God who loves me. Maybe this is exactly what you need to hear today. Do not look to primarily be an ambassador promoting your favorite political party, your favorite sports team, your company, or even yourself. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your bodies. We are ambassadors of Christ, crucified for our sins. And this, this is how the gospel goes from your head to a lifestyle and your schools and your dorms and your classmates and your community and your family and your coworkers and your children need to be reconciled to God. That's their primary need. And this is why you are in their life and not in heaven. And they're going to miss it if you become bloated with scriptural knowledge, but fearful of the world's opinions of us, valuing primarily the things of this world rather than the kingdom of God. No, the scripture is clear. If we believe the gospel, we are now key witnesses, ambassadors, and representatives of Jesus Christ. God making his appeal through us. I love how the NKJV says it. Listen, listen to this work of the Spirit as, that, as though God were pleading through us, as though God's doing the work. Because he is. It's an incredible thing to be given the words of life and then see God make new life right in front of your eyes. And I want this for you, Christian. God has beautiful things in store for the one who is willing to obey him. And so obey him because it's wondrous. Take up the call to make disciples of all nations and share it with the world. Christian brother or sister, I want you to hear this as well, though. If you've neglected your ambassadorship, if you've become fearful of the world, if you've become routine in your faith. Remember this primarily, that God has more mercy in him than you have sin in you. And he has made the way for you to receive that mercy, and you're covered in his righteousness, and you're forgiven, and you are loved by God. No conditional love here. Walk boldly, therefore, and be of good courage. This is the purpose for which you are still here, and it's a rewarding and holy calling. And we can be comforted that the Lord is going before us, preparing hearts, and he walks right beside us to give us the words. I want to close with this. I learned this this morning, January 8th, 1956, 66 years ago this morning. Jim Elliott and four other missionaries were killed by warriors of the Waroni tribe of 60 people in Ecuador while trying to share the gospel with them. 
Those men did not die in vain, though. But many from that tribe later came to faith because of the testimony of their lives and their commitment to being an ambassador for Christ. And I find a quote by Jim just remarkably fitting to close with today as we consider what it means to take this holy calling as ambassadors for Christ seriously with our lives. It's short and memorable. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we, we ask you that you make us into a people, a church that is more committed to your glory than to our own status in this world, God. Oh, we're so weak in you. We need your mercy and grace and power. Lord, I need your mercy. So conform us, Lord. Conform us into the image of your son that we may please you with our life. That's our desire. Lord, I ask that you would draw more people to yourself today too. People who have been pushing it off. Lord, stir up hearts today. Free them from their sin and cause them to glorify you forever. And make us a bold people who want more than anything to make you known in this world, to make you famous, Lord. Jesus, praise you for your word, your gospel. So bless us this week and give us the opportunity as ambassadors for your glory. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you all will stand, we'll close.